listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. You know those big closet doors that reach from the ground up to the ceiling? They look like accordions. They have a track on the bottom. I shoved Billy into one of those closet doors, and he just went crashing into it. Now, this was a very foolish thing for me to do because Billy ended up, he grew up to be over six feet tall. Now, me on my best day in my mind, I am five foot ten inches. Now, proportionately, it might as well have been that much of a difference between me and Billy, even back then in the fourth grade in Mr. Rinaldi's fourth grade classroom in Franklin Township Elementary School. That's where this happened when I was having a serious argument over a very important issue with Billy. I know it because I was there, and that's what led me to get so agitated and aggravated that I shoved him into that closet door. We were debating the existence of Santa Claus. And Billy had the view that uh, I learned was correct. However, at the time, in my naivety, I didn't know that he was correct. I went home that day, sat with my mother in our farmhouse just a couple of hours from here, and she told me the reality about Santa Claus. And I heard the reality about Santa Claus, and uh, my world changed, my worldview changed at that moment, myths All of us at certain times believe in myths. They are embarrassing when we find out we've believed something that's not true. Sometimes they create a tremendous amount of stress and difficulty and hardship. Whenever we believe something that's not true, we end up causing difficulty for ourselves. I was kidding myself, and somebody needed to be honest with me about the truth. Now, on a more serious note, perhaps you have heard that... 2017 will be a milestone for us that there will be a radio frequency identification chip as a result of Obamacare, the Affordable Health Care Act. Every American will be required to receive a radio frequency identification chip underneath your skin about the size of a grain of rice. Maybe some of you have heard that. And that's concerning, especially in light of Revelation chapter 13, when we read this about the Antichrist and the false prophet. It says this, Revelation 13, verse 16, also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, we don't know if the radio frequency identification chip is that, but the technology exists to be able to do that. And here's something that's written up about this, this new health care law. The Affordable Health Care Act law requires a radio frequency identification chip implanted in all of us. The chip will not only contain your personal information with tracking capability, but it will also be linked to your bank account. And get this, page 1004 on the new law, of the new law dictating the timing of this chip reads, and I quote, not later than 36 months after the date of the enactment. 
It is now the law of the land that by March 23rd, 2013, we will all be required to have an RFID chip underneath our skin, and this chip will be the link to your bank accounts as well as have your personal records and tracking capability built into it. Wait a second, 2013, it's 2014. That didn't happen because it's not true. How many of you were a little bit alarmed when I was reading that and telling you about that? Saying, oh, could that be true? It's a myth. It's not true. Now, could that technology one day be used to fulfill Revelation 13? Of course it could. We know where the world is heading. How could somebody 2,000 years ago have predicted that type of a mark on the body that is required before you're able to buy or sell anything? That's what the Antichrist and the false prophet will be involved in. But I bring this up to help us understand that there are myths circulating and percolating. There are things that we believe that are just not true. And when we believe them, when we embrace them, and we find out that they're false after we were living as if they were true, we end up being and feeling very embarrassed, don't we? We end up feeling very stressful and stressed when we're trying to make life work and it's not working the way it should be working because of a myth that we have embraced. Now, today we're going to do a reverse altar call. A reverse altar call is not one that happens at the end of the message. It happens at the beginning of the message. Suppose you believed something that was categorically not true. Suppose you were embracing a myth. Suppose it was a big myth, a big fat myth that was affecting the entirety of your life. Would you or would you not want somebody to tell you that it's not true? How many of you would want to know if you were embracing a myth that was messing up your life? Of course you would. How more importantly, how about if God wanted to say something to you about a myth Suppose God wanted to say to you, you're believing something that's categorically not true. Would you want to hear from God? Would you want God to correct you? Go ahead, let me know. Stand up if you would like God to let you know if you've embraced a myth that is categorically not true. Stand up. If you're remaining seated, that means you don't care. You don't want to know about the myth. You don't want to be corrected. You don't want insight. You don't want input. Nobody in their right mind would not want to know if you were embracing a myth that was affecting the entirety of your life. And that's why you're standing up now. If you're listening by podcast, pull your car over, get out of your car. Go ahead, you can grab a seat now. This is good to see you respond this way because this passage of Scripture, one of the hardest passages of Scripture to preach on, one of the most difficult passages of Scripture to look at, forces us to look at the mother of all myths, and it forces us to consider, are you fooling yourself? Are you kidding yourself? Look with me at Luke chapter 16 in our Father's Word, beginning in verse 1. Luke 16, verse 1. He, Jesus, also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in your account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. 
So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil, about 875 gallons of olive oil. As an Italian, that makes me feel warm and fuzzy. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50, cuts it in half. Then he said to the other, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. That's enough wheat that would come from the harvest of 100 acres. That's a significant chunk of land and a significant amount of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you, or you will be welcomed or received into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus dealing with here the mother of all myths, and you might be subject to it as well. What is it you need to pay attention so that you are demythified, so that that myth in your own life is taken away, and you begin to live for God, you begin to walk with God, you begin to reach the potential that you were created to live at by embracing the Word of God, by embracing the teachings of Jesus. Look with me at verse 1. He also said to the disciples. This helps us understand very quickly that what Jesus is doing, again, it's this ping-ponging action that we see throughout the Gospels where Jesus is talking to the crowds and then he talks to the disciples. He talks to all of the people, disciples and dabblers combined, the masses of people, but then he also has aside teachings where he pulls the 12 and perhaps more than the 12, those who are dedicated, those who are Christ followers, those who are referred to as sons of light. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He's giving a teaching particular specifically for the disciples, not for the dabblers. And what he's doing is he gives a parable about a man who owned a lot of property, and he had a manager. He was so well off that he had to hire somebody, had to give somebody a white-collar job who was a manager who sat behind the desk. And what did that person do? They managed all of his affairs. We know that there's wheat involved, there's oil involved, olive oil, We know that this man who owned the property had somebody taking care of it all, and he realizes that the man had squandered his possessions. He had not been a good steward, a good manager of his wealth. And so the guy's going to get canned, and he realizes, I'm not going to be good at digging ditches. I've never been a blue-collar guy. I've been behind a desk, been a manager for many years. Some of you know what it's like to either be blue collar or white collar. And he realizes, I'm not strong enough to dig. So 
that's out of the question. I'm also too proud to beg. I'm not going to go into the streets and beg for money. So what I've got to do is I've got to use my position of influence while I still have it to get friendships for myself, to have influence for myself so that people will help me out once my white-collar job no longer exists. His boss was downsizing purposefully, intentionally, because he had not used his money, he had not stewarded his money, not managed his money properly. And so the man begins to cut the amount that was owed to his master down radically, significantly, Seems to be that probably what the disciples at least would be able to understand here is the teaching of Deuteronomy chapter 23. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 23 in verse 19. See, in the law, in the Old Testament here, it describes for us and prescribes how the Jewish people were supposed to treat each other. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. Now, in the next verse, in verse 20, we would see that the Jewish people could charge interest to a Gentile, but they were not supposed to charge interest to a fellow Jew. That's why it's called a brother. Now, many of you want to go out and you want to find a Jewish banker and a Jewish bank, and you wish that you were Jewish because you could refinance your mortgage right now, not have to take care of that interest, but fat chance it's not happening, okay? But back in the day, this is what they were commanded to do in in regard to how the Jewish people were to handle uh, each other in business transactions. You weren't supposed to take advantage of a fellow Jew, a fellow brother. The principle would apply to us today as Christ followers, not to take advantage of another follower of Jesus Christ, following the spirit of the law the ideology that's presented in the law there. Does that make sense? And so what this manager seems to be doing for the owner of everything is that perhaps he is cutting off, lopping off. Maybe the owner was conducting some unfair business practices. Maybe he was charging interest where he shouldn't have been charging interest. And so the manager is shrewd and he's cutting that off and let it, you know, cutting loose and um, letting them off on what they owed in a realistic way without the interest, maybe that's possible. Or maybe what he's doing is cutting it down just for purely selfish motives to give himself solid footing when he will no longer be answering to his, the owner of the estate, but then all the people that owed the owner. He's being shrewd is the word that's used here. He's being strategic in how he's dealing with earthly possessions, earthly riches, because he knows that something's going to be on the horizon for him. He's going to be facing a new reality one day. That's the future that he's heading into, and he figures, I better take care of the here and now, because very soon I'm going to be out from my master's covering. I'm not going to have my job anymore, and I need to be shrewd now because I see what's coming. You know, what Jesus is teaching us here in this passage of Scripture, the behavior of a disciple is the overflow of the identity of the disciple. Look with me at this passage right here in Luke 16. Right here, 
in verse 8, Jesus says, the master commended the dishonest manager. Now, he's not commending the, the practice of this man. He's commending the shrewdness of this man, the intentionality of this man, the alertness of this man. Pay attention. Life is happening. This guy was paying attention, and Jesus was commending him by telling this parable. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world, look at the contrast, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Sons of light. This is a primary way that a disciple needs to see themselves. A daughter, a son of God, somebody who has saving faith in Jesus Christ, you need to be able to see yourself related to God as a daughter of light, as a son of light. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. In Ephesians 5, verse 8, look at what it says here. For at one time you were darkness, not like you were just walking in darkness, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. This is the former identification this is the way you were identified before you came to know Jesus Christ. Before you became a disciple of Jesus Christ, you were darkness. You had a past. I don't care how good that past seemed to be. You had a past, and from God's perspective, you were darkness. And because you were darkness, you walked in darkness. You had no choice in the matter. That's what you did. That's what everybody did. That's what I did. That's what everybody does when they're not a disciple of Jesus Christ. And when you are darkness, you walk in darkness. You do things that are in keeping with your identity, but not so for the man, the woman, the boy, the girl who is a disciple of Jesus Christ. Something fundamentally changes about you where you are no longer darkness, but now you are a son of light or a daughter of light. And therefore, as a man thinks, so he is. As a woman thinks, so she is. Your new identity as a disciple of Jesus Christ is that you are to see yourself as a son of light, a daughter of light. And when you see yourself the way God really sees you, the way you really are, not what you think you are, your life begins to change. You walk differently. You talk differently. You speak differently. And you manage the resources that God has given you differently. That's what Jesus is talking about here. This is about shrewd stewardship shrewd resourcefulness of all that God has given you. He's given you something. He's given you everything. Some of us have more. Some of us have less. Some of us use what we have responsibly, shrewdly, resourcefully. Others of us, not so resourcefully. Some of us have a whole lot that God has given us. Some of us have not very much at all that God has given us. And yet, some of us who have a lot could have had and could have much 
more, not based on what I say, but based on the authority of God's Word and what Jesus says. And some of us who don't think we have very much at all have a lot more than we thought we realized. You see, you've got to be careful that you don't make the mistake that I made for many years, years of my life. Thousands of dollars coming in and out of my hands. And yet it wasn't enough. I believed that my resources would only be significant when I had more. I believed that I could only do something significant for God when I had more than what I currently had. And then, only then, when I got more, would God be interested in what I have. Only then, when I got more, could I then strategically, shrewdly use what God gave me, leverage what God gave me to really do something significant for God. See, I was foolish. I believed the myth that what I had wasn't significant for God, that what God gave me wasn't enough. Oh, I didn't have like so-and-so had. I didn't have that type of a house or that type of a job or that kind of income, that type of resource. I didn't have that type of a business mind to be able to make money. So therefore, what I had was insignificant. And God wasn't interested in it. Why should I be interested in it? So what I did is I lived in a future that continually escaped me. Someday I'll give to God. Someday I'll invest myself for the glory of God. Someday I'll have something significant to use for the glory of God. And I believed that myth for so long. And it's embarrassing to admit to you, a large audience, and on the, in the realm of the podcast world, people, who knows how many people, who knows when people will be listening to this and hearing me air my laundry, but it's true for me. And I suspect it might be true for many of us as well. We believe the myth that I don't have anything significant, substantial to give to God. And because we believe that myth, we don't give to God. We don't act shrewdly with the resources that God has given us. We end up living a merely material existence for the here and the now. And we lose sight of what is coming on the horizon, where we are headed. Look with me at Mark chapter 10. I love the way Scripture interprets Scripture. The gospel writer of Mark, gospel writer of Luke, reinforcing this same teaching in the Scriptures. There is a future coming for the followers of Jesus Christ that is bright and it's beautiful. You're going there. I'm going there. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, there's a future on the horizon. And you and I need to live right here, right now, as if that future is real right here and right now. Look with me. Mark chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution. See, we forget that persecutions portion. 
with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Do you know that there is an eternal payday coming in your life and mine, followers of Jesus Christ, disciples of Jesus Christ? There is an eternal payday that is coming in your life and in mine. And Jesus uses this parable of the shrewd manager taking care of his boss's estate to help us understand that you should, you could, you should and you could use whatever resources God has given you in such a way that how you're using them now will put you in a good position sometime in the future. Look with me at verse 9, Luke chapter 16. Look with me. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you or you will be welcomed or received into eternal dwellings. How you use God's money right now. I don't care how much it is, you've got it. You've got some amount of it. God's giving you some type of an estate. He owns it all. He's made you the manager of it. Whatever God has given you should be, could be, should be, could be, must be, by a son of light, by a daughter of light, used in such a way that it will count for eternity. It'll count for eternity. It does matter how you use God's resources. It's not for you to belittle the resources that God has given you and say they're not significant, they're not important. Right here, right now, you've got opportunity to use everything that God has given you, whether it seems like a lot or it seems like a little. You've got the opportunity, I've got the opportunity to use it wisely, to use it shrewdly, to use it the way the shrewd manager did, resourcefully, to put you in good position for the future. What does this mean here? In verse 9, the end, that you will be welcomed or that they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Do you know? Maybe you don't. That you can, you should, you could, you must, as a follower of Jesus Christ, use all the resources that God has given you in such a way that people's lives will be eternally impacted how you use God's money right here, right now, will one day come back to you because it's affected people right here, right now, and into eternity. A number of years ago, two years ago on Friday, I went to see my father. In fact, I was there by his bedside. He passed into glory, died, and went into the presence of Jesus. I spent weeks before that, a period of about six or seven weeks, taking trips down there taking trips, flying down there, hundreds of dollars down there because my father was not a, a follower of Jesus Christ. He was not a son of light. He was a son of darkness. And I went down repeatedly, spent money I didn't have to try to lead him to saving faith in Jesus Christ, which he eventually did nine days before he passed away. I know that one day I'm going to see my father, even though I spent a lot of money to go down on those trips one day I'll see my Father and He'll welcome me into an eternal inheritance because I used some of the money that God had given me that I didn't even seem to have to invest it 
in something that was not yet realized. Now, before you think that I'm commending myself, I'm not. I'm sharing with you, trying to do it as passionately as possible with you, because someday you will not have the opportunity to use the resources that God has entrusted to you. Someday you will no longer have the opportunity to use the resources that God has given you to change people's lives for all of eternity. Am I thankful that I spent that money? Was it difficult at that time that I spent that money on my father, not even knowing an hour before he gave his life to Christ? He told me to get lost. Am I thankful that I did it? In hindsight, yes, I am. And you will be too. If you invest your boss's money, your master's money as the manager for the only kingdom that will endure forever, someday the way you use his estate that he's given to you will come back to you. And people will welcome you into an eternal inheritance, eternal dwellings because of what you did right here, right now with God's money, with your house, with your car, with your job. It really does matter. It does matter that God has given you stuff. It does matter. It does not matter how much stuff he's given you. It's not a matter of quantity. It's a matter of stewardship. It's a matter of resourcefulness. You'll always find somebody who has more than what you have. Always. But it's up to you and it's up to me. Not somebody else. It's up to you and it's up to me. Only you can determine how resourceful you will be with the little or the much that God has given you. And yes, I'm pleading with you. Yes, I'm begging you. I'm not doing Jesus justice by doing so. I'm begging, I'm pleading. Jesus would beg and plead with you to use the worldly riches that he has given to you, put at your fingertips in such a shrewd, strategic, wise manner that someday, that's not here right now, people will welcome you into eternal dwellings because you used your boss's money, your boss's resources in such a strategically wise way that it mattered for eternity. That's what it's about. This is not a game we're playing as followers of Jesus Christ. Church is not a game. I know we've made it a game. I know we've made it a dog and pony show. We're paying a heavy price for that now in this country. But Jesus doesn't make it a game. Why do we think we have a right to make discipleship a game? The dabblers can play games. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And this is how we do it. 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 That's as much dancing as you're getting out of me. A disciple knows their identity. You're a son or a daughter of light. Live like it. Walk like it. A disciple shrewdly uses the resources that God has given them while there's still time for an eternal payday. Live like it. Live like it. And look what Jesus says here. There is a characteristic 
a word that keeps coming up again and again and again here. Don't let it slip from your vocabulary. Don't let it slip from your behavior as a disciple. Don't let it slip from your mindset as a disciple. Look with me, verse 10, Luke 16, 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who's dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. You know, some of us, like me, God, why aren't you giving me this? Why aren't you giving me that? Because I wasn't faithful with what he gave me. Why should he have given me more when I was squandering it? Why should he have? Listen, can I get any more vulnerable than that? How much more honest can I be with you than that? That's the truth. Why would God, well, how could that, listen, he's smarter than all of us put together on, a, on our best days. Why would God, as the ultimate boss, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, entrust precious stuff to somebody who's not going to use it wisely? It's not rocket science. It's management 101. It's a faithfulness issue. One who's faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Some of us should have more than we currently have, and some of us would have more, we will have more, if we deal with the faithfulness issue. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, meaning worldly wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches, spiritual riches, and if you've not been faithful in what in which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? The idea of faithfulness. The idea of faithfulness. Absolutely vital, pertinent, important, inseparable from the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. Anybody can say they're following Jesus. A disciple puts their money where their mouth is. A disciple shrewdly, strategically, purposefully, intentionally uses all their resources for the building up of the only kingdom that will endure forever. That's what a disciple does. Dabblers get sidetracked. Dabblers are unfaithful. Dabblers do what the Africans talk about, have one foot in one canoe, one foot in the other canoe. That's an accident waiting to happen, isn't it? You just can't stay that way for very long. You've got to make a decision. Which canoe are you going to get into? You can't serve both God and money. See, some of you are into tattoos. How many of you are into tattoos? Some of you, maybe by podcast you're listening. Some people are really into tattoos because you look at them and they could go around naked and they still look fully clothed. You know, tattoos, and there's another thing that also seems to go along with tattooing. It's this idea of body piercing. You know what I mean when I say body piercing? People get their tongues pierced. Sometimes you'll be talking to somebody and they look quite attractive, quite normal. Maybe they look unattractive and abnormal. I don't know. But you're talking to them and as they're speaking, something's flashing around on the inside of their mouth and sometimes they're talking and they're doing this with their tongue, and you're wondering, are they sucking on a gumball? What are they doing? No, and then finally you realize that there's something, a big stud has been thrust right through the center of their tongue. You know, when you have your tongue pierced, you've got to be super careful. Because if you miss and you pierce that artery that's in your tongue, you're going to end up in the emergency room pretty quickly. But some people like to do body piercing. Sometimes it's the tongue, sometimes it's the nose, sometimes it's multiple 
piercings on the ear, other parts of the body. We were down at the beach a couple of weeks ago, and you see these people with, it looks like, rhinestones glued to their tummy and other parts of their body. But you realize they're not glued there unless they're posers. <laughs> They've been pierced. They've pierced themselves with these body piercings, these studs that go inside. You know, that might sound like an aversion to you, this idea of tattooing and body piercing, but the truth of the matter is a great many of us, listen, a great many of us are into body piercing and we don't even realize it. Are you? First Timothy chapter 6, look with me. First Timothy chapter 6. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, what craving? For more money. That some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Pierced themselves with many pangs. How about you? Have you done that? Have you allowed stress to come into your life, difficulty to come into your life, embarrassment to come into your life because you have tried to pursue God and money simultaneously? Jesus said it's not possible. It's the mother of all myths. It's the mother of all myths. It is not possible to simultaneously pursue money and pursue God. It's not possible to simultaneously love God and love money. Jesus says so, not me. I'm only saying it because I'm repeating, although I'm failing royally in giving Jesus justice, I'm repeating what Jesus teaches Look with me at the last verse in this section of Luke 16. Luke 16, 13. No servant can serve two masters. So why do we try to prove Jesus wrong? We justify and we explain away, well, if I have this, Lord, then I'll be able to that. No, Jesus wants you to be obedient regardless of what the consequences are. You focus on obedience, and God will give you all the money, all the resources, all that he wants to give you to steward. God will give it to you because he will not leave you empty-handed. He'll give you the tools that you need to do what he has called you to do. It's the worries of the world, the cares of the world, the distractions, the things that dabblers get involved in that get us off from pure and sincere devotion to Jesus Christ. Jesus says, Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters. So which of us thinks that we're exempt from that? Not one of us can serve two masters. It was true then, it's true today. You can only serve one well. Plenty of people try to serve two poorly. You, me, as for us, we must serve the master and the master only. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. What strong words for Jesus. It's almost as if he really wants us to be serious about following him. Can you imagine that? What is up with Jesus? Come on now. You really want me to get serious about following you? I mean, if I didn't know any better, Jesus, it would almost seem as if you want me to give up my own life so that you could live through me. Jesus wouldn't be that serious, would he? How could Jesus possibly say to us in this economic climate where our 401k, 403b, retirement plan, your Roth IRA, whatever it is, 
You've seen your life savings, your retirement savings get eaten up. Tell me where to put your money that's a safe place. Tell me. Stock market? Bonds? Precious metals? Where do you, a bigger mattress? I don't know. Tell me, where do we put our money these days? It's gotten eaten up. The temptation for you and me is to be more concerned about our future in the here and now than we are concerned with the future in the not yet, in eternity. Jesus' words were true then. They're still true for us today. Use whatever worldly wealth God has given you, he has given it to you in such a way, shrewdly, deliberately, purposefully, passionately, so that one day when you get to see God face to face and you get to see the influence of how you used his money here and now, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.